Friends, I want to draw your attention to the eight and a half by 11 sheet, which has a different translation of Psalms 1 and 2 on it. And it has some headings, and I won't take the time to read the translation again in, in full. We read it already. It would be good to do so, but for the sake of time, I'll simply be referring uh, you to it. And what is more important for the purposes of what I wish to say today, uh, not more important, but what is equally important or also important is what's found on page four. On page four, I have given you an outline of what I hope to cover today. We're in a series on the book of Psalms. Last week, I gave a sermon, a sermon on Psalm 23. And I did so knowing that I would have to ask your indulgence while I gave more of a lesson on Psalms 1 and 2. Uh, teaching and preaching often overlap. And there are three things that I propose to cover in our time today as we consider Psalms 1 and 2. And they are on your notes and in your notes. And I encourage you to take your notes home and to read them afterwards because I think um, much of what I say, God willing, will sink in. So, as I indicated at the top of page four, I want to do three things today to outline a framework for seeing Jesus in most of the Psalms. Of course, the book of Psalms is a book that contains 150 poems. They cover varying topics. Praise ends the, ends the book. The beginning part uh, prevails in laments and songs of sorrow. And the Holy Spirit takes us on a pilgrimage from predominantly lament and has us exit on a sound of praise. And we'll see that in a diagram in a minute. So the first thing I wanna do is to outline a framework for seeing Jesus in most of the Psalms. The second thing I want to do is to highlight the unique nature of Psalms one and two. The unique nature of these first two Psalms that begin the book of Psalms. And I wanna suggest that they are not like pearls on a string arbitrarily placed at the beginning of the book of Psalms by happenstance, but that the Holy Spirit has used these two to introduce us to the theme of the book as a whole. And we'll talk about what that theme is. That is the unique role of Psalms 1 and 2. And then thirdly, I want to uh, convey the message of Psalms 1 and 2. And each of these three purposes is summarized for you on page four. And I may already have put you in a dilemma between listening to me and just going ahead and reading the notes. But either way, I hope that you get the message and that it is clear to you. So I want to begin by uh, referring you to the first point, which is an outline of the framework of the book of Psalms. And I want to just give you a little bit of background by telling you that uh, biblical scholarship progresses uh, like any other field of study, and within the past 40 years or so, biblical scholars have discovered that uh, there is a structure to the book of Psalms. And this structure actually is conducive to seeing the book of Psalms as a book that pertains ultimately to Jesus Christ. A picture's worth a thousand, uh, a, a picture's worth a thousand words, so... A picture's, a picture's worth a thousand words, so I want to refer you to the diagram that's on page eight. Uh, and everybody should have a copy of this. This is one of these Sundays when you need uh, a handout. And uh, uh, Roger, Hamid, if you, um, 
if you're lacking, are, are we short of handouts? If, if you're close beside someone uh, and you don't mind sharing, then maybe you could offer one up. That would be helpful because a few people are without. Depends on how, you know, we've got the engaged couple here. They seem to be sharing nicely. That's good. Good Cody and Nicole. Anybody else? Easter and Josh. This is good. Great. Uh, Sue Yen has another copy here, Roger. Thanks very much. I apologize, but sometimes I just feel guilty about how many handouts we make. My nickname is Chainsaw for the production of pulp and paper. Okay, at the top of page eight, as some of you have seen before, is a, a picture of the book of Psalms as though it were a building. Uh, imagine uh, a room with an, with an entryway, which is Psalms 1 and 2. They, in effect, introduce us. They take us into the building, as it were. And Psalms 146 to 50 uh, conclude the Psalms. And they are um, five Psalms that end with hallelujah. So we, we, end, we end on a, on a glorious hallelujah theme. And Psalm 150 just says, take whatever you have and say hallelujah, because God is worthy of our praise. And then, as you notice by the little parentheses that are adjacent to the floor, the book of Psalms is actually collected into five books. And this is something that you miss if you are uh, using the Psalms in the prayer book. But there are five books to the Psalms. And I want to suggest in a minute that those five books in some way echo the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, and the penny will drop on that score in a few moments. So we have a five-book structure with uh, an introduction consisting of Psalms 1 and 2 and a conclusion that sends us out on a hallelujah note um, with Psalms 146 to 150. Next week or in a few weeks, I plan to preach the middle Psalm, Psalm 73, because um, it's halfway. And that middle Psalm is like a, a, a fulcrum to the Psalms. And uh, it's also strategically important. If you look down at the bottom of page eight, we get to the second part, which talks about the role of Psalms one and two. And I want us to imagine that um, there are two ways to imagine these Psalms taking us into the book of Psalms. One is through a door that precedes the other, like I have in the diagram. And the other would be like two doors side by side, and you can choose whichever door you want to go through. But at any rate, it's, it's clear that these introduce us to the book of Psalms. And the first door, Psalm 1, invites the individual reader to contemplate the book of Psalms um, as a means to grow spiritually. Think of what it says in Psalm 1, blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of wicked of the wicked who stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. But he's like a tree planted by channels of water that bear fruit. So, um, and it, it advocates meditating upon the law. If you look at verse two in either the translation that you have in your bulletin or mine, it says in verse three, or in verse two, sorry, but only in the teaching or the Torah of Yahweh is his delight. And in his Torah, he murmurs day and night. The word law here has a double meaning. 
It's looking back to the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, but now because Psalm 1 introduces this new five-book collection, it's telling us that the book of Psalms, which begins the third part of the Old Testament, is like more of God's teaching. It's on the same level. In fact, in Joshua chapter 1, which is the beginning of the second part of the Hebrew Bible, there's also there an admonition to meditate upon the law. And it's saying that the second and the third parts of the Hebrew Bible are also a continuation of God's teaching. This is more authoritative Torah, which the Jews hold in the highest regard, the first five books. So is, there's no contradiction, it's more of the same, and it's, uh, it's just a, a continuation. So Psalm 1 invites the individual person, like you and me, to read the whole book as a source of nourishment. And to consider this to be authoritative, like Moses' five books, not so much in the way of receiving laws that fill our head with instruction, as good as that is, but more like an authoritative five-book prescription of the range of emotions that we go through in our human experience of God. So a lament where you pour your soul out before God out of frustration or just ignorance or just say, God, I, I don't know what's going on. That too has a Torah-like status, as do the Psalms that are on a happier note, like um, the Psalms of praise. Then the second Psalm. You have to go through this before you enter the building. And it is a Psalm that declares that the king of the Jews, this, 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 this king of this small country in Judah, which seems inconsequential and which other nations are laughing at, saying what a little pipsqueak kingdom that kingdom of Judah is, is actually a powerful ruler because God has invested his authority in that individual. In other words, God is saying to the nations, watch out, you guys. You think you're big, powerful nations, but I'm telling you, the king of the Jews that I have appointed to rule in Jerusalem is my special agent and the fate of the world is in his hands. So if you're looking for evidence of where Jesus is seen in the Old Testament, uh, look no further than Psalm 2. Go to page 9, and I simply want to uh, take a minute to underscore the framework, the Christological framework of the Psalms, to show you how in toto it uh, points to Jesus. We've looked at the beginning, we've looked at the conclusion, Take a minute to look at the floor of the main building. In the first three books, the emphasis is on David as the king. Books 1 to 3, Psalms 89. And then as you make your way across the floor, as it were, to the conclusion, you'll notice that starting with around Psalm 93, the emphasis is not on David as king, but on Yahweh as king, on the Lord as king. So if Psalm 2 as it does, and I hope I said this, I meant to say it, if Psalm 2 tells us that the whole book is about God's Messiah, because that, after all, is the introduction. Psalm 1 is saying you can read the book from a personal standpoint for your own edification, or Psalm 2 tells you you can also read the book as a book that has to do with Jesus Christ. That it's a book that is messianic through and through. And we know this, this is not a Christian invention, but we know this because um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are pre-Christian, contain a version of the Psalms that makes this abundantly clear that the book of Psalms is not just a book of poems, it's not just a book of hymns, it's not just a book of prayers, but it is a book of prophecy by David about the David who is to come. 
So the book of Psalms is all about the Messiah. So as I've mentioned once or twice before in teaching over the past few years, and I simply review it, and then we'll go to Psalms 1 and 2. The way that we can understand Jesus to be pictured in the book of Psalms is to ask what kind of a Messiah fulfills the hope that's embodied in the book as a whole. Well, according to Psalm 1, it would be a wise person who is grounded in God's teaching who pronounces Beatitudes. Psalm 1 begins, Blessed are those who do not walk in the way of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But on his law he meditates all day long. So here, a wise figure who is to be identified with the Messiah is pronouncing a Beatitude. And I think that there's no mistake, uh, this is no coincidence, that Jesus, when he gives one of his speeches, the five speeches in Matthew, he begins with Beatitudes. Jesus is copying the model of the individual at the beginning of Psalm 1. So whoever's going to fulfill the messianic hope embodied in this psalm as a whole is going to have to be a wise student of the law who does things like pronounce benedictions, pronounce blessings, who points out to the wicked that they are wicked and that they better change their ways or they're in trouble. Then according to Psalm 2, this is going to be a man who is known as the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God who is the King of the Jews. And the, the text makes it very clear that this is not a particularly auspicious-looking role. In fact, uh, his role is grossly understated. But in Psalm 2, God tells us a secret, that he has his interest, and he has his whole program tied up in this king of the Jews that other people are tempted just to laugh at and write off. And God says, if you think this is a joke, my friends, the joke is on you, because I have installed my king as the king of the Jews on Mount Zion. And one day, everybody is going to be held account uh, to him. And so uh, the Messiah, therefore, is not just to be a wise teacher of the law, but he is to be the king of the Jews, uh, somebody who rules from Jerusalem, who's from the, son of, uh, from the line of David, who claims to kind of have cosmic power over the nations, and the nations don't have a clue of his significance. Then we come to the main floor when it comes to talk about David as king. And from Psalm 3 onward, we meet a Psalm, a David, who suffers. In Psalm 3, David suffers. In Psalm 22, David suffers. The poor guy is uh, afflicted and smitten and downtrodden. And this is why Jesus underscores his ministry as one that involves suffering. It's necessary that the Messiah should suffer and that the Messiah should die and raise on the third day. But well, we see the suffering of the Messiah in Psalms like 3 and 22. Then when we come to Psalm 89, there's a juncture. There's a cross in the floor. And in Psalm 89, it appears as though the Davidic covenant is broken, as though the king is, is, is dead or something. His crown is lying in the ground. This, I believe, prefigures the crucifixion of Jesus. After Psalm 89, there's a crisis in the theme of the book. But three psalms later, at the beginning of Psalm 93, there is a fresh proclamation that Yahweh is now the king. The Lord reigns. And you want to say, the Lord has always reigned. What's the big deal? But no, something new and different is here. The Lord is king. And it was Jesus who saw this by quoting Psalm 110, which comes from the second part of the floor. And he says, you know, you guys think that uh, the Messiah is the son of David, but I want to tell you that this Messiah is none other than Yahweh himself. So the book of Psalms as a whole point in, uh, I think, a most remarkable way um, 
to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And we know that by looking at the forest rather than uh, looking at the trees. Thank you, Andrew. I'm back behind the little lectern here, which will help me stay on track. The role of Psalms 1 and 2 I have already indicated. Um, let me just suggest, um, and you remember we got these two doors that are the entryway to the building here. Uh, we're going to have to keep our kind of thinking caps on, and I apologize to those of you for whom this is new. I have covered this before at Christ the King, but um, I think it's, it's incredibly important. You can enter the book of Psalms either through door one or through door two. But door one can also precede door two like I have in the diagram. And it tells us that the king who is to come is someone who is to meditate upon the law. And it's in fulfillment of what we find in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 15 to 17, which is on page seven of your handout. It talks about a future king who, when he sits on the throne, he's not supposed to amass wealth, wives, uh, armies, horses, but he is to take a copy of the book of this law and to meditate upon it. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it. I'm reading the underlined part of what's on page 7. He shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and all of these statues and doing them. So Psalm 1 is not only kind of a separate door that we can enter to personally meditate upon the Psalms, but Psalm 1 itself is an admonition to the king that Jesus is no different than anyone else. The king is no different than anyone else. We come under the authority of God. The other role of Psalms 1 and 2 is um, picked up by Psalm 2. And uh, here we run into a little bit of a mystery. If you think about it, we got two different psalms, and the psalms both constitute an introduction to the Psalter. And the question is, what are these two psalms together telling us about the book of Psalms? And on page five, I have a number of different opinions which have been shared by people. And, you know, if we had time to do a Bible study together, we would simply read Psalms 1 and 2 and say, put these messages together, uh, what kind of an introduction is this? And at the bottom of page five, I have underlined um, a summary that I think is particularly noteworthy. It could go something like this. Think of Psalm 1 plus Psalm 2 equals a message. Individual meditative reflection upon the Psalms as Torah brings a joy and nourishment. That's the message of Psalm 1. In the context, now we're coming to Psalm 2, of a world where nations plot and engage in a war, in a world nevertheless ruled by the Lord and where those who are hurting can find refuge in him. So in each of the cases of Psalm 1 and 2, there are good guys and bad guys. In Psalm 1, there's a righteous person, and there are evil people. In Psalm 2, there's a righteous God and his Messiah, and then there are evil rulers. So we have this kind of uh, tension between good and evil that's played out in the individual plane, as well as on the cosmic plane. And that, of course, echoes what is going on in our world today. My friends, there's much more to look at, but let me, for the sake of time, simply move us to the message of Psalms uh, 1 and 2.
I want to suggest that Psalms 1 and 2, apart from introducing the book of Psalms as a book about Israel's Messiah, invite us to choose the better lifestyle that's talked about in Psalm 1. In other words, go the way of the righteous. Do not bow in and give in to peer pressure and to become one of the, the, the people who is just wicked and rotten to the core. So you want to choose the right lifestyle, and the right lifestyle is to be a person who's characterized by righteousness. It's a person who studies the Bible like Jesus taught us to. It's a person who ingests books of the Bible and God's teaching. And the promise that comes from that is outlined in this simile, that if you do that, you'll be like a tree that has been transplanted beside an irrigation channel. This is a perennial source of water. In Israel, of course, uh, streams ran dry and trees suffered badly when there was no water. But you will be like a tree that has been transplanted by channels of living water. And you will yield fruit in your season and your leaf will never wither. And then comes the outcome. Whatever that person does who chooses the right lifestyle, the lifestyle that conforms to the teaching of God, will prosper. And of course, here's an individual who's talking about the ideal person. And it's as though Jesus is telling us to be that person. But you need to hold up a mirror to the person who's saying this and realize that this is Jesus himself as well. He's the one who embodied this psalm and who flourished and who meditated upon the Torah and who prospered and who flourished and who brought salvation to the whole world. You have a choice, it says, between choosing the right lifestyle or the wrong lifestyle. The right lifestyle is all about good. It's all about nourishing. It's all about flourishing. It's all about submitting to the will of God and absorbing God's teachings. But notice you have another choice. And you come to part two, as is outlined on page one. And he mentions ever so briefly the other lifestyle. Not so the wicked, but only as chaff which the wind blows away. One Jewish literary scholar who's well known named Robert Alter has said that here in the description of the wicked, the psalmist doesn't even afford the wicked person the benefit of an active verb. This is somebody who's here today and gone tomorrow. And these, my friends, characterizes the values in our culture. Right now, we're living according to a set of standards which everybody seems to think is right. But it's new and it's novel. We're not living that way before. And in 30 years from now, we'll be on to something else. But there's a group of people uh, among Jews and Christians who say, we're staying the course. We're abiding by God's word and we are deriving our morals and our standards by this divinely inspired text that we use as our guide. My friends, that is the right lifestyle. Continue the way of the wicked and you'll be gone like chaff in no time but only as chaff which the wind blows away. And then the psalmist concludes by saying, the wicked will not rise up in the judgment, which means either they will not have a place of prominence within society and will not kind of have a, have a place of reputation in the local town councils and such, or else they will not rise up and be around on judgment day, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. We have a choice between two lifestyles that's epitomized in Psalm 1. My friends, Yahweh knows the way of the righteous. 
Notice the relationship that's implied here. Yahweh knows your way. He knows you. There's a relationship here that is vital and alive. The way of the wicked will perish. Nothing personal about it. You're here today, gone tomorrow. My dear friends, for God's sake and for yours, choose the right lifestyle. Then we come to Psalm 2, which is parallel in many ways to Psalm 1, but it operates on the cosmic level. Here in Psalm 2, we have, um, again, two choices. A choice between not the right lifestyle and the wrong one, but between the right God and the wrong one. And at the beginning of Psalm 2, we can see echoed in our day very well that the nations and the peoples are raging against the teachings of God. They're murmuring in vain. They're taking their stand together. And they're, 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 the princes intrigue together against God and his Messiah. You see, God is tied together with his son, his divinely ordained son, the king of the Jews, the Messiah. The two are in tandem. They're almost indistinguishable. And the people are saying, oh, this divine law and this Jesus stuff is just getting under my nerves. Let's get it off. It's like shackles around us. We are tied down by all this religious Jesus stuff. Let's cast off their ropes. We can do it. We're a lot more powerful than this Jesus message. Well, my friends, from God's perspective, he just sits and he goes, oh boy, this is funny. You guys have no idea. And the Lord speaks to them and he speaks to them in his anger and his wrath. And he says, I want to remind you of something. I myself have installed my king upon Zion, upon my holy mountain. This is the king of Judah. This is not just the king of Judah, of course. But it's, 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 it's growing beyond those boundaries to be a reference to Jesus. No king of Judah was ever an intimidating force, particularly to anybody else in the world, with the possible exception of Solomon. And it was only for a short time. And he did not live up to Psalm 1. He amassed uh, horses for himself. He was arrogant. Well, then in the second part, or in the, in the, uh, in the third part of Psalm 2, David himself, the king, speaks. And he said, let me tell you the contract that God has written with me, the decree has made with me. And he said to me, you are my son. This day I have begotten you. If you didn't know better, you'd think you were reading from the Gospel of John. But this is the Hebrew Bible. This is the Old Testament. And Jesus tells us he's prefigured in the Psalms. And so he was. And then God says to the son, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, your estate, earth's limits. This is the great commission that we've been looking at over the past few weeks when Jesus, after he's raised from the dead, says all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go into all the nations and make disciples of people by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all of my commandments, Allah, Psalm 1, Allah, the Beatitudes. And here in verse 9, the prerogative is given of Jesus to smash us with an iron bar and to break us like a potter's vessel. And I suggest that's an option that he chose not to do in his first coming, to give us the opportunity to align ourselves with the right lifestyle and with the right Lord. But if we don't, that shall be our fate. Yes, I've come with a warning. And indeed, that's the way Psalm 2 ends. It ends with a warning to earth's rulers and earth's peoples. Now, O kings, be prudent. Take heed, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh in awe. And then in the same breath, kiss the son. 
Serve Yahweh in awe, delight in trembling, kiss the sun, lest he grow angry so that you perish on the way, the same way that Psalm 1 ended, for his anger can be kindled quickly. My friends, God is a gracious God. Jesus is a gracious, saving Lord. But God is God, and God judges evil. And we, told, we are told that a time will come when the curtain will be drawn and our fates will be determined, and that the judgment of God befalls any of us who have not chosen the right lifestyle and aligned ourselves with the right Lord. People, these are delightful words, and they're also harsh words. And if you have any uncertainty about what I'm saying this afternoon, nothing could be more important and nothing could be better than simply kind of sort of coming to somebody afterwards. Maybe somebody who's wearing a collar or a leader that you recognize in the church is kind of saying, like, I didn't get that, but it sounds really important. Can you tell me more? We would love to be able to tell you more about what it means to serve Jesus. He's prefigured in the book of Psalms. He's prefigured and he's figured in the New Testament. This is the real deal. These are the Jewish scriptures which predate Christianity. And in fact, it's so clear that Judaism, in its response to the episode of Jesus, has distanced itself from this teaching, um, which is indeed uh, inherent in the Old Testament itself. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Psalms and for the way in which it points us to our Lord Jesus. We pray this day that by your grace, you would uh, instill us with a desire and a will to follow the right lifestyle. We know that you forgive us when we fall short, but the standard is high and you call us to that standard. And we pray that we might choose life, choose your word, and to choose your son in whom is life abundant. In his name we pray. Amen.